For years, I was so fed up with shampoo, I just stopped washing my hair. I quit completely. I was so sick of poofy, frizzy, limp hair, distorting my natural oils. Until a few months ago, I found Modern Mammals, and it changed everything. And by the way, right now you can visit modernmammals.com and use code LSS for 10% off. So check that out. So look, I heard about this through the podcast, and before I agreed to advertise, they sent it to me, and I was reluctant. But let me tell you, I should not have been. This stuff is absolutely magical. My hair felt better, smelled way better, and most importantly, looked better. And I know it will do the same for you as well. It doesn't have those hair-ruining chemicals like other products, and it doesn't leave any leftover residues. It works. Don't believe me? Go read their awesome reviews online as well. Go to ModernMammals.com and use code LSS for 10% off. Again, that's ModernMammals.com for 10% off with promo code LSS. Don't forget to use our promo code LSS so they know we sent you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Lead Singer Syndrome. You might hear a little traffic noise, some birds chirping behind me. I'm in Melbourne, Australia for the Unify Festival. This is exciting. Australia, I'm sure you've heard, has been hit real hard with some horrible fires. Down here today, at least, there's no smoke in the air, which is hopefully a good sign um, I guess Sydney is the area, and New South Wales is the area that's been hit kind of the hardest, and uh, the capital, but uh, down here, it's okay. But hey, if you um, want to give, you want to help out, there are so many great causes out there for the incredible country of Australia, one of my favorites, if not my very favorite, and uh, I'm excited for this festival, man. If you're in Australia, come say hi. We're doing it. We're doing it like tomorrow, or today, or, well, I don't know. We're in the future here. It's, it's kind of wild stuff. Uh, but thank you for tuning in. We got a great episode today. I speak with Stephen Brodsky. Oh, what a legend. Of Cave In, one of my favorite bands, one of Silverstein's collective favorite bands of all time. And he's great. This is a great conversation. And uh, yeah, I could not be happier to have you here with me for this one. Speaking of Silverstein, today... We just released a brand new song. It's called Infinite. We're pretty, pretty stoked on it, man. So check it out. I'm going to play it at the very end of the episode, actually. So once you're done listening to this, you'll hear it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, we got a new record we announced today, too. It's called A Beautiful Place to Drown. It comes out March 6th on UNFD Records. It's very exciting. It's a very exciting time for the band. Pre-orders are up now as well. So feel free to check that out. What else to say? Well, if you don't know about Cave In, they are absolutely so important 
for the music that I've made, for the music that so many others have made. They started off like this crazy metal band, metalcore band. But this is like in the 90s when metalcore wasn't what you think metalcore was. Um, but it was really good. And then they sort of ventured off, and Steven talks all about this. They ventured off into some softer stuff, into some more spacier stuff, and became extremely influential, signed to a major label. And, well, they're still kicking around. They got a new record they put out recently. So I don't want to spill the beans on all that stuff because it's a very compelling and very interesting. And at some point, well, it's a little bit sad, too, the story of Cave-In, which you'll see. But what a band, and so happy that Stephen Brodsky could take the time to do this. Before we get into that, you can always get in touch with me. You can email me, leadsingersyndrome at gmail.com. Make sure you add me on all your social media as well. Hit the subscribe button and all that stuff. So let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Steven of Cave In. How, uh, how's your day? Uh, my day is good so far. Yeah, how about that's, you, Chris? That's good. Pretty good. I uh, I just got up, actually. I uh, My girlfriend works nights. She works uh, she works from midnight to 6.30, which is kind of wild. So a lot of times I stay up, like, kind of into the wee hours of the night until I have, you know, until I'm just, like, passing out and then my morning kind of just doesn't happen. So that's how I live these days. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, night owl style. Yeah, a little bit. I've kind of always been like that, though. Like, uh, I found, like, just creatively, uh, for me, I always wrote some of the best stuff and came up with the best stuff, like, you know, like, three in the morning. You know, like, I have memories of, of coming up with, like, exciting, like, you know, like, a, oh, it's a fucking great chorus. And, like, I look and there's just some shitty infomercial, like, on mute on the TV screen. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, well, those are interesting hours to work because, you know, most people, well, a lot of people aren't awake or, you know, (laughs) maybe most people that you know. So, you know, it's interesting when you get in a creative space because you, it's all about like focusing and concentrating and um, being really devoted to that moment. And sometimes I catch myself like feeling a little guilty about that. Like, oh, should I be texting my friend back or should I call this person back or should I be making, right. should I be making that doctor's appointment and you know none of that matters at three in the morning <laughs> no exactly and that's I think that's what it is it's like I'm I don't I don't want to say I have you know ADD because I've never been diagnosed with it but like something's going on you know like something's up I have a lot of trouble concentrating so when I can really like shut everything off that's what you know that helps me so for me, that's my take. I feel like you, though, uh, and thank you so much for doing this, man. Um, I really do appreciate it, and I'm 
a huge fan and I have been like, you know, fuck for like over 20 years, you know, your creative output is prolific. <laughs> There's a lot out there. There is for sure. There's quite <laughs> a bit of stuff to sift through. Yeah, it's true. Like if somebody just like hears this and doesn't know, you know, who you are, they're maybe they're younger or like you're just kind of getting into all this stuff. Like, it's like, damn, dude, like, where do I start with this guy? That's a great question. I mean, I think the band that kind of put me on the map, uh, well, you could say Converge. I mean, that was probably, you know, the first thing that I was a part of that had sort of like a wider recognition. Um, I was yeah. in Converge and Caven at the same time, but Caven was still kind of getting its footing, whereas I feel like Converge had already kind of established its musical stamp and influence on that world by the time, you know, definitely by the time I had joined the band, which right. wasn't much time at all. I mean, you know, I think Converge started in like 92 or 93, maybe. Uh, I can't quite remember, but by the time I joined the band, they were a thing for just a few years, maybe three or four, five years tops. Yeah. I can't remember. Well, you were on the whenever forever uh, when forever comes crashing record, weren't you? I was, yeah, yeah, and that's I mean that's an incredible record. Like to this day, I mean I guess Jane Doe's the record everyone talks about, but that record was at the time I mean was very important in terms of like you know metallic hardcore and and the scene and everything. I mean that was the the record that put Converge on the map as far as I'm concerned. Oh, that's cool. Um, well, I seem to remember it being their first sort of big release, like in terms of um, Equal Vision pushing the album, which was definitely an established label in the world of hardcore at that time. Um, You know, that was the time that the band did its first U.S. tour, uh, which I was on, and that was also my first U.S. tour in the summer summer of 97. Um, Yeah, so it's very cool to kind of think of myself being a part of that special time for the band. Totally. I mean, it was a special time for the scene and everything. Um, but what, like, I think people maybe just listening to this don't grasp is just how young you were. I was 18 at the time of the band touring on that album. So I guess that would put me at around like 17 or 18 uh, recording the record. Uh, right. I can't, man, it's it's all a little foggy. But uh, yeah, I was still a teenager, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's just crazy thinking about that, like, you know, being in these in a band like Converge, which everyone like thinks of, you know, it's such a legendary band at this point, you know, thinking about just a couple high school kids kind of running around, like, you know, between, you know, algebra class and geography, like, you know, writing set lists on your, your notebooks and stuff, you know, planning on the big summer tour when school's done for the year, you know, it's, it's like a, it's a, interesting thing to think about now when music has basically become your entire life. It's true. Um, those guys were, you know, and still are (laughs) as time goes uh, a little bit older than me. Um, but yeah, there was a funny moment in the, uh, uh, I think it was the end of 1997 and I hadn't graduated high school yet. Uh, but those guys had scheduled a recording on a school day. 
So uh, we made this plan for me to break out of high school kind of early that day. I ended up hiding in the bushes and (laughs) they kind of just drove in with, um, I think they had this bus at the time that they were using as their tour van, or maybe they were, they were, they may have been borrowing piebald's tour bus at that point, which was a school bus. The yellow one? Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. they sort of like snuck into Methuen High driving this bus like some punk kids, you know, behind the wheel. And uh, I think I jumped out of the bushes at just the right time, jumped in the bus, <laughs> and off we went to, you know, record some sick hardcore. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Um, you know, for me, like growing up, I'm from Toronto area, um, but, you know, we were all obsessed with all the bands from from Boston. And it's just funny hearing you talk about borrowing Piebald's van and, and all this. Cause like, for me, it was like, there was the big four, you know, the like big four, like Metallica, Anthrax, Megadeth, all that. Um, I felt like there was the big four of Boston, which was cave in, converge, Piebald and American nightmare, you know? Um, and it seemed to me like it was just the coolest scene to be a part of, um, it was just crazy though. Like all the other bands that came out of there, you know, kill switch and unearth and hope conspiracy and, um, a Bane fuck. Like it was unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah, man. Um, there was a really wide range of cool stuff happening, like all within the umbrella of hardcore music, you know? Right. And, um, it it was kind of cool in the sense that like, you know, you hear stories about like, the eighties and maybe even into the nineties where like punk and hardcore were kind of like these separate entities or you weren't sure if you were supposed to be one or the other, or the cross right. was kind of controversial in some areas, but there wasn't a lot of that in the nineties, uh, late nineties in the Boston music scene. It was pretty communal, um, which is cool. Um, you know, it wasn't strange for Piebald and Bane to be on the same bill, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. So I think that just kind of led to a very sort of communal vibe. And I think that's really sort of carried over even into this, you know, 2019, like those sort of communal vibes continue to resonate, which I think is why like our world of music, our little community of bands and all the people that sort of are wrapped up with one, but maybe are still tied to another. It's, it's very incestuous, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, it all kind of ties together from that foundation that you're talking about, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, why did you leave Converge? I mean, obviously, Caven got started, and that was your thing, you know, being the lead singer of that band and the the main, you know, songwriter and everything. Uh, but, you know, that, I guess you just felt like you couldn't do both bands at once? What was it? Yeah, that's pretty much what it came down to, is that both bands were sort of, really kind of going somewhere. And, uh, with that in school, uh, I just found that I was at a breaking point and I needed to make a decision. Um, you know, it was a real honor to be an actual full-time member of Converge. And it really kind of did wonders for my whole world of thinking about music and writing music and and just the attitude that you should have about carrying yourself in this world, you know? Um, but the Caven guys are like my oldest friends, you know? I mean, yeah. JR, the drummer and I were like hanging out in 
my bedroom in Methuen, Massachusetts in like 1993, I had invited him over to show him that like, hey, I know these Nirvana songs and I can play them pretty well. And you're the only drummer in Methuen that I know. So please be in a band with me. (laughs) So So is that how it started for you? (laughs) Well, that's how my relationship with JR started. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what was it? Well, you, I mean, you talk about your your early life, and I love that because I think that's so interesting. Um, but what was so? You grew up in Methuen, Massachusetts. Like, what were your parents like? What was the family structure like? Did you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, uh, I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Um, and yeah, we all grew up in Methuen, Massachusetts. That's where I lived until I was about eighteen, and. Uh, my parents were super supportive and they still are. Um, they were very open about loaning out their basement for us to set up gear and to play. And, um, we would do that until they got completely sick of it. And then we'd move to someone else's <laughs> house and, and garage or basement and then, you know, play there for as long as we could until their mom or dad or parents got sick of it. And it was just this rotating thing. So by the time it was my turn, <laughs> to try to convince my parents that, hey, can we practice in the basement again? By that time, they had forgotten their annoyances about having us, and they were like, all right, yeah, sure, come on back. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I look back to, to, you know, we're about the same age, and, and, you know, it was the same thing, you know, everywhere. And I just think it's amazing that my parents were so cool about some of it. And I remember my mom coming downstairs and being like, you know, you guys sound great, but... The bass just the bass is a little loud. It's kind of rattling the whole house. Could you turn it down a bit? (laughs) Things like that. Or my my dad coming down and being like, I just need you guys to stop for ten minutes. I got a really important phone call. (laughs) And like because you know, there was no cell phones, there was no going outside and taking the call. It was like, you know, sorry, my my kids are gonna have to stop with the terrible renditions of like Bush's machine head for you know for five minutes. Yeah, the the cord on my landline doesn't reach that long. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, 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 exactly. Um, So, I mean, getting into this so so early in your life and obviously taking it pretty seriously, you know? I mean, you're talking about joining a band that was on, uh, not a major label, but a a very big independent label with Converge and then the aspirations for yourself did you you did you actually go to um go to college or try to do anything like real world or was it like even that young did you know that you were gonna kind of focus on music i did go to college i did two years at a school that at the time was called mass communications and i started out with an interest in sound engineering um but i found that the program was it was a little difficult to really immerse myself in. Um, as somebody who grew up with like a cassette four track machine that was at my disposal, right. you know, at any time of the day, um, this program made it so that you could sign out a studio for an hour a week. <laughs> and <laughs> I found that like, I was just able to like turn the control room on or like turn the, yeah, get the speakers powered, you know, or like, <laughs> or like, like get a signal to a microphone and then, Oh, your time's up. <laughs> and I'm, That's so true. Yeah. And I'm not really a night owl usually. So, um, those were when the studio hours were most available to me. And so it didn't really work. Unfortunately. Um, 
I ended up switching my focus to general communications and just taking all different sorts of classes, um, a lot of writing classes actually, which um, at the time had helped me produce a bunch of material that I ended up needing for Until Your Heart Stops because um, when Caven made that record, it was really this like wild goose chase of trying to prep this material in time for when we actually recorded it. And we found ourselves with like three weeks before the recording and uh, I had just become the lead vocalist for the band. Um, some <laughs> member changes and kind of lineup shuffling. And so uh, all this writing that I had done for these creative writing classes in college uh, were super useful because I was able to pull from that material to assemble uh, a great deal of the lyrics that you can hear on Until Your Heart Stops. Um, cool. Yeah. Uh, cool. So yeah, I mean, I, I remember the first record I heard was Beyond Hypothermia, I think. Um, and and, and Until Your Heart Stops. Like, those records were so rad. At the time, um, I hadn't heard anything quite like it. Like, I hadn't heard, uh, you know, metal and hardcore mixed you know, in that way. Um, was that something that you guys, was there other bands that kind of you ripped off at that time? Or I should say were inspired by at that time? Um, or was that something that you kind of took, you know, a few different ingredients and put them together? Well, yeah. I mean, by the time that collection had come out, which was essentially like a bunch of recordings that the band had made since we started until, right. was it 1997? I think that, record came out or 98 maybe um yeah that was like pretty much the reflection of us being immersed in the world of hardcore from basically the very beginning um for me um you know that world kind of came my life around like age 15 um that's when i started to really fully embrace the world of punk and hardcore as i knew it at the time mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, like the fir very first Caven show, we covered a song by Threadbare. We did the song Ignition. Um, <laughs> nice. I don't even think I played the whole thing. I think I was just so pumped that like I threw my guitar down and stage dove as if I were at a Threadbare show. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else? We covered a Snapcase song. I think we did Looking Glass Self. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, and then, so it's funny. So if you take those two bands and you kind of smash them together, that's like, that is sort of like early Caven. And then, you know, maybe add little hints of sunny day real estate. And that's where you get like the idea to throw in some melodic vocals, you know? Right, right. Absolutely. Well, being thrown into it, you know, as the lead singer, whatever you said, just like two weeks or whatever before the, uh, before the record was going to be recorded, the second, you know, LP, or, well, I guess the first LP, kind of, Until Your Heart Stops. Um, were you uncomfortable with your role as, like, this screaming front man? Like, that hadn't been you before, had it? It hadn't, no. Um, I wasn't so much as uncomfortable with it as, you know, again, I was, I was 19, so, you know, I was used to, things changing rapidly in my world at that time. You know, uh, I had just moved to Boston after growing up in Methuen, living there for 18 years. So I was living in a new place and our band had just had this lineup change. Um, 
where we became a four piece and um we also had Caleb Schofield just join the band. Um, right. So as weird and as uncomfortable as the lead singer thing may have been at that moment, um, I feel like the lineup of the band felt more solid than it ever had been at up until yeah. that point. Um, so it took like two to three years to really find our footing. But, um, you know, J.R., Adam, and Caleb were just very supportive of me kind of doing that um, instead of trying to find a fifth member and to continue as a five piece. Um, and they were just like, look, man, you know, lower that mic stand down, you know, get a crouching stance like James Hetfield and you got this. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, uh, the, the sound didn't last long, though. I mean, you know, just when I was fan- finding out about you guys and a lot of other people were, um, Jupiter came out. And Jupiter was an amazing record ahead of its time, extremely ahead of its time. But, you know, a lot of people were confused um, because this metal band from Boston was now sort of like a space rock band. At least that's what everyone was saying. Um, obviously, that was in, an intent. You know, you had a lot of intent to do that. Um, what what was just going through your minds at, at that point? Well, at that point, the band had really settled into being the four piece that we were with, you know, Caleb, myself, Adam, Jr. And it felt great. You know, um, we had some touring under our belts and we kind of felt like we had sort of established this foundation between four people that all kind of had the same mission statement, um, which was super important. Um, and you know, it was a feeling that took, like I said, you know, a few years to finally stumble upon. So until your heart stops for what that record is, and you might not hear it when you, as just like a casual listener, but it did have a lot of baggage, you know? Um, I mean, there were riffs on that record that were written by our first vocalist, Jay Frechette. Um, who was a founding member of the band and one of my oldest friends. And, um, he was actually a really creative guitar player in his own right. Mm-hmm. And so that combined with stuff that um, our second vocalist, Dave Scrod, had written for the record. He actually titled Until Your Heart Stops. Um, right. So it was like a, a combination of like that stuff sort of producing this feeling of like, well, we got to kind of like really make a statement as like, the new cave in that we are just this four right. piece lineup, you know, something that has no baggage. Um, it, it's just, you know, as forward thinking for us as possible, which was kind of the healthiest thing to do, I think for, you know, where we stood at that time. Um, and then two things happened. Um, we had a van fire that destroyed a ton of our gear. Um, so it was like this sort of cleansing moment of like rebuilding kind of right. new things, you know? Um, and Interesting. That's because that's such a horrible thing to have happen. But I guess in hindsight, it was an interesting like development that maybe needed to happen in order for you to get where you, you know, ended up. 
Absolutely, because it really forced us to stop in our tracks. I mean, literally, uh, we had to cut mm-hmm. we had to cut our short our tour short um, because we had no gear and no van to get to the next show. <laughs> um, Damn. Yeah, um, it was definitely uh, a real turning point for us. So that was one thing that happened. And then shortly after that, after we had kind of rebuilt ourselves and started writing some new material, stuff that would eventually become Jupiter, um, we went on tour with Neurosis. And, you know, being these like 19-year-old, 20-year-old, 21-year-old kids, essentially, still, and like going on the road for just a week with these like, these 80s punk hardcore seasoned vets like road dogs you know Um, legends like come on absolutely um it was truly eye-opening for us um and in a lot of ways just seeing how their operation worked um Mm -hmm. their times of grace record had just come out so that was a huge milestone for neurosis um here's a record they did with steve albini you know (laughs) it was raw it was in your face it was um just kind of next level stuff for that band. And we're taking cues from all that and going like, well, here's how to be a band that kind of like mixes elements of Pink Floyd into their sound. It's still heavy and it's graceful and it kind of all mixes together in this unique way. Maybe we can do something like that, you know? Um, so yeah, those are two real big turning points for Cave and that, helped to shape the sound of Jupiter. Cool. Well, I felt like you guys didn't care too much about what people said or thought either. Um, like I, I forget if it was Hellfest when you guys, or what if it was one of those big festivals you guys came out and you like opened with, you know, like a 10 minute rendition of dazed and confused. You know what I mean? Like you guys kind of, it seemed like you didn't really give a fuck. Yeah, that was our move back then was to go, all right, everybody, we're going to play some old stuff and people would get psyched and then we'd start playing a Zeppelin song. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it, it it was pretty bold to think back on kind of how we did all that, especially because, you know, um, I think – I don't think we realized quite um, – the mark that until your heart stops would leave on some people. But again, this kind of goes back to like what I was saying earlier about life, just feeling very fast and, and changes were rapid. And this, it, the whole thing with Jupiter just kind of felt like another stage of the whirlwind, you know, um, of, of things changing very rapidly. And, and again, like that wouldn't have happened nearly with the the grace and the precision or the even being able to like embrace some of the mistakes that were that came along with that stuff um if if the four of us weren't really like on the same page and at least we we had each other's backs you know um yeah that's what it takes you know absolutely man so uh you guys got signed to a major label which is pretty crazy um you know, I mean, not everyone gets an opportunity to do that, especially at the time when you did, because that was when major labels were still throwing around, you know, six-figure checks like fucking like nothing. Um, 
you know, so tell me about that experience and, and how, at least how that happened, because that's not, you know, it's not easy when it wasn't easy. Yeah. Well, again, going back to the rapid change of things in that time period, um, this was another extension of that basically. Um, you know, we found that going out and kind of being the band that we were around the time of Jupiter, that our audience was kind of changing a little bit, you know, sure. Um, the male to female ratio was a little bit more balanced, you know, <laughs> um, which was interesting. Uh, it it kind of like it made us think that well, for every fan that we might lose because we're not like pounding people with until your heart stops and beyond hypothermia straight through a set anymore, um, you know, we're gaining just some different interest in what we're doing, and so that was also very noticeable to people in the world of major labels and, and such, you know, um, right. They just saw that this band was kind of just stirring up some stuff, you know? And, um, we, we were pretty entertained by the whole thing. Um, just because it started out innocently enough, but the way this stuff works is like when one label takes an interest, then, you know, several others go, oh, well, so-and-so is like sniffing around this band and, you know, yeah, of well, course. they must be, they must be uh, noteworthy or, or there must be some, hype, right. you know, the hype is real or whatever. So uh, that's around the time that we were approached by a manager and she kind of helped us field all the various, you know, levels of interest that were coming our way. And, you know, I mean, we were just kind of like, all right, you want to take us shopping at Newbury comics and you want to spend three grand and we'll just like buy as many CDs as we want without any care. All right. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's so funny. Yeah, sure. We'll we'll go to a dinner with this guy who, you know, uh, is is telling us that he's ready to go over the cliff together, which eventually became a lyric in the song Trepanning, (laughs) you know? (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, no, using using inspiration from from uh, label and manager meetings for your next step in your career is uh, is definitely like should be one hundred and one. Uh, you know, a one hundred and one class. Yeah, listen to Perfect Pitch Black, and that'll you know give you some ideas on how to translate you know some some of that insanity into uh, songwriting. <laughs> there you go. Oh, the funniest I had a. A band one time when I was, I guess I was in like second year university and it was my, my best friend, Chris's band. And I just kind of played bass, you know, filling in, kind of helping them out. And all of a sudden Atlantic records was calling and, uh, wanted to fly out and see us play. And we didn't even have a manager or anything. And our, um, singer who was a bit aloof, uh, we sat down at the meeting and we're there and, it was, we're at a steakhouse and I'm vegetarian and it like, it's ridiculous I'm eating like sides of asparagus. And, um, that's completely irrelevant to my point. And the singer goes, well, bottom line, uh, I'm not quitting school. And Kevin Williamson at Atlantic records goes, okay, what am I doing here? And we're like, dude, just play along. Like whatever. We're just, we're getting a free dinner out of this. Right. Like it's just so funny. I don't know. But <laughs> It was yep. it was too bad. I don't know what that guy. I mean, that guy's a doctor now, and he does really well. So good for him. But uh, yeah, it's funny looking back at some of the like 
crazy moments we had with <laughs> labels and all that shit. So did he blow it? I mean, did you have to pay for the dinner afterwards? We didn't have to pay for the dinner. I got my asparagus on the house, luckily. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so, so that was that was good. Yeah. You know? Um. Yeah. Well, it didn't work out on the major label, right? I mean, like to to make a long story short. Um. And the record you put out was definitely even softer than Jupiter. Um. I I at the time it came out, I was pretty iffy on it. I think now it's my favorite. Um, you know, I but I mean maybe I just wasn't in my my headspace, I wasn't ready for the record yet. Yeah, that's totally valid. Um, you know, it is quite a departure especially if your first introduction to the band was Beyond Hypothermia. Um, yeah, well, it was. I mean, yeah, you put those two records together and it's like it sounds like two different bands and, and totally so it was, I, yeah. you know, it, it was, I absolutely, I mean, but I was, you know, I was, I've always been very diverse in what I listened to. Like I love Jimmy Eat World and Piebald and I love, you know, the softer side of bands. And I don't know. I think I just, I think again, yeah, I just wasn't ready for it. When perfect pitch black came out, I was like, okay, here we go. Like this is, this is what the, the cave in record I've been waiting for. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, because, um, Perfect Pitch Black, essentially, I don't think that record could have been made unless we had gone through the experience of being on a major label and uh, making the kind of record that Antenna is and then having it um, basically commercially flop and for the band to get dropped and just go through that whole experience to come out the other side and, and you know reflect that through art, which ended up being perfect pitch black. Um, you really can't have one without the other, you know? Right. Yeah. What was it like on that, at that time doing like all that major label crazy stuff, like, you know, touring with the Foo Fighters or Muse or all, all like doing all that insane stuff. Was that, I mean, that must've been a pretty cool experience. Yeah. I mean, there were wonderful moments um, that were part of those experiences. There, there were also some very confusing ones. Um <laughs> For sure. Um, it was kind of a mixed bag. Um, because on one hand, when you tour with a band like Muse and you go out and you simply just play uh, and there's no like there's no radio stations like pumping your music or there's no additional promotion behind it or there's there's no label push to make your album sort of more present surrounding just the shows. Um, all you're doing is you're just an opening band for some, you know, some giant uh, thing that is like, uh, you know, it, it's, it's tricky. It doesn't, it doesn't work the same really as, as it does in punk rock. You know, um, there are some differences. So that was kind of tough because, uh, you know, with Foo Fighters, it was a little different because that was sort of like still the honeymoon period between Caven and RCA. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, our, our album hadn't come out yet and we were direct support for Foo Fighters and in, in the UK. And like, so by the time we hit the stage, 17,000 people in Manchester are already like in their seats waiting for the show to start. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. Um, but, uh, we had to, by the time the Muse tour came around, we kind of had to beg our label to give us tour support to do it. And, Part of it is just so that, like, you'd see the words Caven and Muse together out there, you know? Um, it's <laughs> it, it's hard. Like, like when, a, when a, 
I love Muse. Um, I was a huge fan of Origin of Symmetry, and that's kind of like, you know, really flipped my world upside down. Um, yeah. So, like, it was sort of a, like a bucket list thing just to tour with them. But, yeah, was it the best thing for our band at the time? It's it's hard to say. It really is. Um, they were becoming rock stars at that time, like, just really, like, massive venues and, you know, the um, but, uh, you know, this was also a time when Caven was just doing stuff to look busy, you know, and that, that's straight up like that is verbatim kind of like, well, you got to look like you're doing stuff. And that's, that's how the label is going to continue supporting you. And, and, and the label continues to have your back. But this is also a weird <laughs> time too, because we were falling out with our label. We hadn't had an A&R guy in place for like months, you know, we didn't have our guy kind of like rooting for us at the label and our records tanking. And we're just kind of like out there trying to look busy and hoping that like that will kind of sort of fix this commercial flop that was happening. And, you know, we ended up just getting dropped. But it was great because yeah. we got bought out of our contract and we had it in place that if the label was going to drop us, we were getting paid. So that's crazy. Yeah. And we had a yeah. good, we good had, lawyer. We had a great lawyer who had that in place upon signing our contract. We were able to take the demos that were shuffled around for LP number two on RCA, uh, which people were like, I don't know, you're bringing back the Cookie Monster vocals. Uh, you guys are going backwards. And we're kind of like, no, oh. we're not going backwards. We're actually, we're, <laughs> we're we're on our way out of here. Like, <laughs> like, the- well, at the time though, I mean, that was, I mean, we're talking about it was 2003, like 2004, this was probably happening. Yeah. And that was like a crazy, a pretty crazy time. That's when, when my band was, you know, first coming up on our first album too. And that's when, you know, screaming wasn't really on the radio yet, but it was coming, you know? Um, and there was ba- a big shift in what, you know, was, was able to be played on, you know, on, um, MTV and, and Fuse and all that, you know, and the Cookie Monster vocals, which I I find a very derogatory term. I don't like that at all. Uh, that was coming. And I think a lot of the major labels weren't ready for it or didn't grow up in hardcore and didn't know what that was. And that just sounded like crazy to them. It's true. And I completely agree with you on that term. I mean, it's really just like it doesn't put Cookie Monster in a good light, you know. <laughs> this wonderful character, and he's you know, one of the best, a yeah. great songwriter in his own right. I mean, <laughs> you know, me lost me Cookie at the disco. <laughs> great song, you know. <laughs> uh, Bro- you got to do a record. Bro- Brodsky sings the Sesame Street classics. Bring back <laughs> all the Sesame Street songs. There's probably some great songs in there. Oh man, absolutely. Going strong still too. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, I totally, I can see how that time period was probably like a, a, a turning point for heavy music or anything under the umbrella of rock and roll. And, you know, it was also mm-hmm. probably strange for fans of our band who kind of had witnessed all these different changes in our sound and our attitude and vibe and, you know, as a fan, you just get to a point where you go like, I don't even know what to make of this anymore. Um, there are definitely some people who are just gung ho the whole way through, like 
no, you know, I don't know. I don't care. Put out a reggae record. I'll buy it. Like, it doesn't matter. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, it's true. It, it's, it's tough. It, it, it's, I think t- a lot of change at once is just kind of confusing for anybody. Um, so, I, you know, I don't look back on that time with any sort of like, uh, I'm not too frustrated by the lack of commercial success. I'm very aware of why it didn't work. Um, okay. And I'm okay with it. Um, and I just kind of take all that experience and go, well, that's, that's, uh, that's just part of my war stories at this point, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Well, you become, I mean, you become a very, a very successful songwriter, uh, doing lots of work. In fact, you did write with our guitar player, Paul Mark, uh, Paul Rousseau. And, uh, that was a blast. You actually, yeah, no, thank you. I mean, you actually showed us a very cool tuning, which we call Bad Gabe, which, uh, has found its way into a lot of our songs at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, well, as far as like heavy tunings go, I mean, that's the thing that really kind of flipped me on my head at like a very young age, you know, um, like hiking you know, about a, a mile or two to the local pharmacy where they sold, you know, issues of Guitar Player magazine or... Right. Um, that was how I had to get my information uh, as like a 13-year-old kid in like the early 90s. You know, this is before the internet. So yeah. I'm reading about like Soundgarden and the tuning they use for Rusty Cage or Tool what they tune to for um, prison sex and going, Oh, drop B. That's interesting. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's where that tuning sort of came from and, you know, with Caven and mutoid man and, you know, it's, it's something that we sort of milked a whole bunch and we continue to run with it. So yeah, I'm, well I'm, we've milked it too. So, um, awesome. you know, and our, and our, our drummer's favorite band of all time is cave in. So it, it just all kind of makes sense, I guess. Um, it's, it's funny though. I, I had a stupid fucking Floyd Rose on my guitar when I was a kid, so I couldn't tune anything. I had, I was stuck in whatever E, you know, even drop D was like a whole thing, unlocking the nut and all that bullshit. Oh yeah, and it takes you forever to un, you know, to loosen that little screw by the bridge, and then you you loosen it too much, and it just pops out. Um, oh, changing strings or like it was a nightmare. I didn't even bother changing strings after a while. It's like you know, cutting the ball ends off and then putting them in and then tight. Oh, it gets horrible. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. First world, but it was our player problems. No, yeah, no, I know. But Kirk Hammett had that bridge, so I had to have that bridge. That was just you know. That's the way it was. Kirk Hammond, uh, lead guitar. Yeah, yeah. I heard. Uh, I heard you slay at karaoke. Um, I you're really good. I genuinely find lots of enjoyment doing karaoke. Um, I think I've always just wanted to be a lead singer, which is why I'm a, <laughs> this podcast is perfect. And in fact, yeah, you know, LSS is one thing, but you know. It's all about LSD, really. Lead singer's disease. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which now that's that's the term. That's kind of the old school term. I think a lot of people have been been trying to correct me, saying it's not LSS, man. It's LSD, and I'm like, well, that would be just like people would think this is some kind of you know uh, hallucinogenic uh, drug podcast or something. Right, right. I, so I, I don't know. No, I think you've done well for sure. Okay, okay. But um, 
I definitely have the disease and, you know, I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I've gotten to, I've gotten to, to, you know, dose on that stuff here and there. Like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a, a show that, um, some friends do called two minutes to late night. Uh, no, I don't think I am. Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's super entertaining. Um, uh, so mutoid man is the house band for this late night themed show. Oh, okay. Um, awesome. Yeah. And, um, it's something that we did for a couple of years straight and produced a bunch of episodes. And, um, so part of the, part of the, the, the theme of the episode is like, you know, we're the house band and we, you know, play a song or two with a musical guest. And, um, so if you want to just see me on the microphone, you should look up, I think one of the best performances is probably, uh, hot for teacher. And we, uh, Oh, nice. And we, we've got Gina Gleason, uh, on lead guitar, uh, the guitar player for Baroness. Um, so yeah, I mean, look, uh, hot for teacher. That's not an easy one. Can you do all that Van Halen, like high shit, all that, like, I can't even Im- imitate it. Oh geez. Well, I had to kind of nail all those little parts. <laughs> you know what I'm I, talking about? I, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I, I had to kind of do my, I had to find my own way with it. My, you know, okay. I mean, it's, it's, DLR is just a you know in like seventy eight seventy nine is like pff, I mean that that's really just a uh, who can do that I mean uh, it's 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 a rare thing so yeah Michael Starr from Steel Panther it's about the only guy I can think of absolutely that's a that's about it yeah, um, yeah. but have you ever had a had a moment like where you've been in some random city on tour not on tour. Uh, you know, and you've like walked into a karaoke place and there's just a bunch of weirdos and you're like, I'm just going to blow everyone's mind right now. Have you ever done that? Uh, yeah, I went up and, and sang a Caven song at karaoke. <laughs> really? That was a little mind blowing to people. And then the machine just went dead like halfway through the song. Uh, so it was a real, <laughs> the whole thing was just a comedy of errors. <laughs> <laughs> no, at the the karaoke machine, like the program got confused and was like, "Wait, is this the actual track or what happened?" It just yeah. didn't know what was going on. There's a weird time continuum thing going on. Yeah, I must have just <laughs> opened up a black hole or some kind of portal there. And yeah, oh man. So on a serious note, and I, I it must be hard to talk about, but I have to you know mention it with Caleb passing away. It's just so terrible. Um, but such a beautiful thing that you guys did, you know, the members of, of your band and, and just that whole scene, you know, seeing members of my favorite bands when I was a kid, kind of now as adults, you know, raising money and, and doing all these things was, was a really beautiful thing. Oh, well, thanks so much. Um, yeah, uh, we were lucky to have the blessing of the family, the Schofield family to, to do these things, to do the benefit shows and to help raise money and just to do things to honor Caleb. And it was very healing for us, uh, just to right. get together and spend time together, you know, um, yeah. doing what we love and, um, playing these songs that Caleb wrote and doing the things that we love to do that we did with Caleb. Um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think death is uh, in 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 this world. Uh, it can be celebrated or dealt with in many different ways, and 
uh, I think in this particular instance, it would have been just a real um, backwards, inappropriate thing to deal with it quietly, you know? Right. <laughs> so um, I think music had to be involved and it was involved and it continues to be involved. And, um, you know, I, I'm thankful for it. I really am. I'm thankful that like we can all kind of get on the same page about how we feel about this whole thing and, you know, continue to pay tribute to our friend when we go out there and do this stuff. And it's definitely given us a new perspective on, you know, how we carry ourselves and the meaning of all this and, and not, yeah. and not taking it for granted, you know? No, 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 absolutely. Um, well, taking over for him in old man gloom, you know, paying tribute to him every time you put on that bass. I mean, that must bring back memories. That must be very emotional as well. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, it's a mix of feelings. It's like, on one hand, I don't feel like I belong there. You know, I'd rather see Caleb in old man gloom. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure a lot of other people would too. Um, but I also, like I said, I just look and see my friends up there with me and we're playing this music that is very much Caleb and it's very much a, a part of our memories of Caleb and it's his expression. So it feels good to be able to continue to offer that into the world and to channel that out there. And it's like, you know, the more Caleb, the better. And, you know, if that means old man gloom pushing on and then that's what it takes. And, you know, that stuff to me is stronger than any of like the dark feelings of like, uh, what am I doing here? <laughs> um, I wish it was, sure, Caleb, sure. you know, that sort of thing. Um, so I'm very thankful to just have the opportunity to go out there and, and to be able to be a part of that, you know? No, no it, was, it was an amazing thing when I heard the, the, heard the news and I, I've never met Caleb. I just had heard, you know, so much about him, you know, just everything from, you know, all the, the Converge, you know, people talking about him and Caven, of course, and Old Man Gloom. So, you know, to, to read about that and then read that you guys raised what something like seventy two thousand dollars, you know, um, uh, you know, initially that's just an incredible, incredible thing. So, you guys should be very, very proud of of yourselves and just the the fact that you still have such a amazing sense of community, you know, within that scene where you know you're they were grabbing you out of bushes, you know, taking you in the piebald van to the converge practice, you know, and it's it's all come full circle. But now, you know, in a serious adult way, it's 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 pretty pretty awesome. It really is. Um, it was very remarkable to see the community outreach um, for both the Boston Benefit Show that we did. Um, we did one in yeah. LA. Um, we did one in London. Um, it's great. And it's it's kind of a way for us to produce some opportunities for people to show their appreciation as well. Um because I think that's important for people, you know, to give people an outlet to grieve. Uh, of course, of course, because just because you don't necessarily know somebody personally doesn't mean that it doesn't affect you. You know, when you're when you're a fan of someone or you look up to someone, I mean, that that still is can be very, very difficult for people. So I completely agree with you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, 
those feelings are very real for people. And, you know, I can tell you that just going out there and doing this and talking to fans and the reactions, um, you know, it's like a wide range of things from people in tears to people wanting to give you a hug, people wanting you to give them a hug, right? people just wanting a moment to talk. And it runs, it runs the gamut, you know, and, um, but it's good because in these exchanges, there is a healing process for me as well, you know, and it's something just I can be additionally thankful for in this whole experience, you know? Absolutely. Well, the final, I assume it's the final uh, cave-in record, final transmission is out now. You guys, I read you guys are giving half the money to the Schofield family, which is a beautiful thing, and everybody should check out that record. Yeah, well, it's interesting that the title does sort of allude to that question, like, is this the final cave-in record? Um, it's probably the final cave-in record with Caleb. Um, you know, we we were working on new material for what was going to be another album. And, and so what you're hearing on Final Transmission are essentially demos for what was supposed to be um, put towards the writing and the conceptualization of another cave and record. Right. Um, will it be the final cave and record? Um, that's hard to say. I, I hope not because, um, you know, it's been a strange couple of years now without Caleb, but, um, we've put a lot of work into basically revitalizing this band and putting the wheels back on, just to do the benefit shows and to kind of go out yeah. there and support this record. And it's amazing that we have Nate as committed as he is to doing the band and yeah. applying himself in so many ways, um, just even beyond strapping on the bass and, and killing it on vocals. And, you know, I mean, he was one of Caleb's good friends and they were in a band together. So, uh, it would be a shame, I think, if we weren't able to sort of produce something new with Nate to sort of celebrate and honor this work that we've put into doing Caven at, at this point. So, yeah, I agree, man. Yeah, I would hope that um, we can pull it together for another record. And, and cool. You know, uh, there's been conversations about writing some new stuff, so we'll have to see what happens. So what's next for you? I'll, I'll, uh, I really, first of all, I really do appreciate you taking all this time to speak with me and, and going back and reminiscing and everything. Um, thank you so much. Uh, but I do want to know yeah, what's going on next. I mean, Mutoid Man is in full effect. Uh, what a great project. And, uh, you know, you're always doing sting- things. And so what's up? Well, um, Mutoid Man actually wrote a bunch of new stuff for what could be another record. Um, cool. We just have to kind of get on the same page and sort of figure out how we're going to make that happen in the best way possible. Um, you know, with the second half of this year, Caven really kind of took over and, you know, I wanted to give my full attention to pushing final transmission. Uh, I'm really happy about yeah. the tours that we did. So yeah, again, um, there's talk of writing some new stuff. Um, next year, uh, Converge actually is going to be doing some stuff with Blood Moon, 
which is really exciting because Blood Moon is this project that they did a few years ago where they went out and toured with some additional members, um, myself, um, Chelsea Wolf, and Ben from Chelsea's band. Uh, And we went out and we did like all like the sort of bastard child songs, like all the deep cuts from Converge Records that um, nice sound like studio experiments or stuff that they weren't able to pull off live just because they wanted more, um, you know, uh, members on stage to kind of really do the songs justice. And that experiment went really well. And the idea was like, well, Hey, why don't we go out and why don't we like write some stuff for this lineup and put out a record? And so cool. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. So three years later, we're actually getting together and doing it. Um, so that's supposed to come together, um, next year. And that's, that's pretty exciting. I mean, I, I can tell you, we've already done some writing for it and, um, the material that we've come up with is really, really cool. So, um, definitely a, a next step for converge and I'm really psyched to be a part of it. No, I love, I love that. I mean, you know, converge and cave into my favorite bands ever. And they you started, you know, together and you've, you've meandered away and now to be back together again, creatively at this point is, is, that's the best news I've ever heard. So that's uh, that's very very cool. Thank you, Stephen. Well, thank you. And I, I I don't know if those guys will have to pick me up from um, you know some <laughs> weird bush again to do it. But uh, maybe I'll just throw them a curveball just for you know the, the sake of old times or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I heard the song about Piebald's van, and it's no more. So you're gonna have to find a different ride at least. <laughs> Right on. Well, Stephen, thank you so much, man, for taking the time. Um, uh, I'm going to leave the people with a tune. You have such a vast catalog of material, but is there a song I can play for the people right now? Sure. Well, you know, the focus of our conversation was mostly around Caven, so I'd have to go with a Caven song. And, you know, at this point, I think White Silence is probably my go-to Caven record. Um, it was just like okay. a triple creative moment for the band. Um, sure. And, uh, you know, I think the best song from that record is probably Sing My Loves. And it's probably one of Caleb's finest writing moments. Um, we all kind of had a hand in shaping it to be what it is, but the, the real impetus of that song came from Caleb. And, uh, yeah, I would say uh, let's roll out with that one. I love it. I love it. All right, here it is. Sing my love. I'll be singer syndrome. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Shane.
So there it is with Steven. Yeah, the best. What a guy. Great, great episode and a great song. Sing my loves. And uh, so happy they would do this. Hey, next week, we're going to be back with a bit of a different vibe on the podcast, but not something that you're going to want to miss. The guest definitely has lead singer syndrome, lead singer disease, whichever you want to call it. He's got it for sure. I'm talking about the one, the only Michael Starr of Steel Panther. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It it happened. It happened. So, again, make sure you're subscribed. You don't want to miss this one. It is. It's great. It is great. All right. Like I said in the intro, Silverstein, we got a brand new song. We got an album coming out March 6th. It's called A Beautiful Place to Drown. Here is the first single. I'll play it for y'all. It's called Infinite. Here it is, and thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Here it is on Lead Singer Syndrome. Peace and love. See you next time. I want to breathe like I'm brand new.